0: So we're going to now look at Psalm 99. Psalm 99. Let me read this in your hearing. It says The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his foot stool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his, stat- they kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O oh Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Holy is he. Holy is he. So we examine this text. we want to encourage each other to praise the holy God who loves justice and the unjust. On the surface of the text, we see that there are some appropriate responses to realized truth, that when truth is presented, there ought to be a response. So you'll notice that this This song breaks down into two major chunks, verses 1 through 5 and then 6 through 9, and both of them end or land on this idea that God is holy. But within the text, you see certain responses to reveal truth. Look at verses 1 through 5 again. It says, the Lord reigns. Okay, what's the appropriate response? Well, the peoples ought to tremble. He sits enthroned upon upon the cherubim where the earth quakes. The Lord is great in Zion and he's exalted over all the peoples. What's the response? We ought to praise his great and awesome name because holy is he. And it goes on to talk about how he loves justice, establishes equity, executes justice and righteousness for his people. And our appropriate response, according to verse five, is to exalt, to lift up high, to have a certain perspective and perception of the Lord our God and worship at his designated place. All because he is holy. Now, why is this text important for us in here today because there's a fundamental truth that you will become like who or what you worship we're actually shaped by who or what we worship and if you worship an incomplete portrait of god then we get what we got distorted fundamentals and malformed christians notice that uh, we're today focused on the psalms. We looked at one long psalm or song. This is not necessarily a long one but all of these truths are set to music and I want to challenge us just in passing to think about how and what we sing about God. And his attributes, because when we leave out of our collective discography, any mention of God's justice, righteousness or holiness, all of those are themes in this song. When our playlist doesn't reflect God's heart for the marginalized, are we really telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth about God? If we don't rehearse the truth about God, then we cannot metabolize the truth about ourselves. Without truth, spiritual, emotional, mental freedom becomes illusory because not only does truth set us free, but truth keeps us free. We are shaped by what we worship. And if you don't have a complete um, picture See, it's very interesting in this age of AI, where we gotta now figure out what's real and what's AI-generated. Now, fortunately, we very often, many of us have an AI-generated picture of God that doesn't have enough pixels. It's not fully distinct, precise, true. I said that at the beginning that I was going to talk about gaps. The gap I see in here is the distance between us and God. The best way that we can describe that distance is holy is he. He's he's different. He's He's not just a better version of the best thing that we can think of. He's sui generis. He's in a class all by himself. And the best way we can describe the distance between us and God is holy is he. Completely set apart, completely different, completely distinct in his moral purity and actually in his very essence. He's distinct from us. Now, that's good news and that's bad news. That's good news in the sense that I don't want a God that's just like me. Because I'm messed up. You, I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't even like me sometimes. So I don't want a God like me. I need somebody wholly different. It's also bad news because how can I relate to somebody who is so different from me? The gap, the distance between he and I is so great. Uh, how, how can we even deal with now this idea of getting a handle on who God is by how he reveals himself instead of praising a figment of our imagination is what I'm concerned about the holiness of God is not just an attribute to be studied or a concept to be pondered the holiness of God is an the the essential, the integral part of his being that ultimately, if we can grasp, even though it's ungraspable, if we can wrestle with it, it can literally change our lives. Look at the text once again. I, I said it breaks down verses one through five and then verses six through nine, but even in verses one through five, you see, in verses one through three, at the end of verse three, it says, "Holy is he, right? Because from verses one through three, it talks about his transcendence. It uses word like words like, "He reigns, he's enthroned, he's exalted above his people, and therefore we ought to verse three, praise his great and awesome name. This idea. Of his name Uh, name particularly in the Old Testament but all throughout the Bible and still in many cultures name is not just something to differentiate you from the person sitting next to you it's not just something that needs to be on your driver's license or your student idea it idea it speaks to this issue name speaks to this issue of character of reputation of, of the attributes of somebody or literally As it relates to God, his name expresses his true essence. It's who he is as he's revealed himself to be. And the best way that we can get a handle on that is he's holy. He's distinct. He's completely other than us. And his character is revealed in his majesty, his, he reigns, as it reveals in his authority, he's enthroned, as it's revealed in his greatness that he's just, as I said last time, he's better than you imagine him to be. And as a result of that, we ought to learn how to praise his character. Now, what I'm trying to say right quick here is that it's great to thank and praise God for what he's done. The Bible commands us to do that. But at the same time, we need to exercise our muscle of praise, of worship for just who he is and how he is and how he reveals himself to be. He's, come here, Isaiah, they ain't listening to me. Well, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. How did you see him? He was high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. I saw smoke. I heard sounds. And I heard angels crying out. And the best thing they could say was, holy, holy, holy. One holy is good enough. Holy, holy, Hendiades in the Hebrew, is the way that they would intensify a word. So the way my son talks to me, he says, I said, uh, son, do you really need this? He said, yeah, for real, for real, for real, dad. When when he doubles that up, that intensifies. If you're old and country like me, we'd say, well, that was a show nuff, show nuff. What that means is, uh, show nuff means good. But if it's a show nuff, show nuff, that's a way of intensifying the word. Holy, holy, that's good enough. But the angel said, no, it ain't good enough. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. This text is pointing out his name, his essence. The the very essential part of his being is so distinct from us that it ought to cause us to tremble. It ought to cause us to reflect on his awesome and righteous name. And then in the second part of that stanza, verses four and five, says something that claims our attention today because we don't very often make the, con- we don't usually press in on the connections that are clearly a priority in scripture. And one of those connections, if you look at verse four and five, is this idea that this holy one, this king, this enthroned, exalted, reigning king loves justice, establishes equity executes justice it's difficult to translate verse four and so if you look at it in different translations it might say different things Uh, but the idea is that the king the one who's enthroned in verse one in his might loves justice that is great news for those of us who live with our backs against the wall that he not just loves what is right He can do what is right. And he does not just love what is right and not just does he do what is right. He establishes. He establishes equity. He establishes that word means straightness or integrity, rectitude. He establishes all of that as a function of his holiness as a result of the distinctness that he has, he does not get caught up in a lot of things that we get caught up in in our own flesh and our own humanity as we sort of try to uh, try to put a value on humanity based on economic status or ethnicity or what country you come from or gender or all that kind of stuff. No, no, not with this judge because he's so distinct and so different from us He seeks the highest good for all of his image bearers and makes sure that in equity, in straightness, in rectitude, that he executes justice. And for that, we ought to praise him. When's the last time you praised him not for your bank account, not for a good grade, but for his justice, for his equity? For the fact that he always does right wait a minute and he has the power to make sure it comes out right you see but sometimes it seems like it's too long well you should have listened to the last uh, hour i already dealt with that you gotta learn how to live in the gap you gotta learn how to live in the gap because he is holy and we ought to celebrate how that holiness manifests itself in the way that he loves justice let me cut across the field here So if we worship that God, there ought not be a gap between what he loves and what we love. And how he operates and how we aspire to operate. Uh, What I mean by that is, since we love what he loves, we hate what he hates, we ought to do what he does and do it in the way that he does it. Will we do that perfectly? Of course not. We're aspirational in that, but... We're going to strive for that until Christ be fully formed in us. Is this a discipleship conference? Okay. That's what I thought. Okay. So as part of your discipleship, where does justice fit in? As it relates to how it functions in relationship to God's holiness. And is in fact not our holiness, should not our holiness reflect his holiness? And if his holiness seems to love justice equity, and execute justice, how is it that our holiness just revolves around what I don't do? (laughs) Old folk used to say, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't roam with those who do. That's what my father and them used to say. Now we got a different type of holiness where it's about, well, I'm separate from them. I, I don't do this. I don't get involved with that. Okay, that's great. There is a way that we have to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. James chapter one, right? But what, what else does James chapter one say? Pure religion and undefiled, holy, before the Father is what you see about the widows and the orphans. You can't separate the two. It's not about just separation for the sake of isolation. It's about maintaining purity and at the same time being interested in those who are the marginalized. Because you become like who you worship. And if we're worshiping the true and living God, it ought to flow out of us this same love for justice, equity, and the execution of... Just, but, but look at what else he says in verses 6 through 7. He says something very interesting that ought to uh, claim our attention and give us great encouragement. He uses Moses and Aaron and Samuel, these great intercessors of ancient Hebrew history, and talks about how these individuals not as superheroes, but as emblematic, symbolic, as representative of us and all of our frailty. Listen to what I'm saying. He mentions Moses, Aaron and Samuel, not because they were so much different from us, but because like us, they had their foibles and failures and flaws. Yet they called. Am I reading my Bible right? Look in your Bible. They called on his name. They called to the Lord. And he answered them. (laughs) Don't just blow by that. Moses and Aaron, Samuel, old man Samuel, they they called on the Lord and he answered them. Let me cut across the field again. I was trying to save some of this to the end, but I'm just too happy right now when I think about how God is and how he relates to us and what our response ought to be. The text says that this holy one would fool with people like Moses and Aaron. You, you do. you Have you read about Moses? Moses uh, lost his temper. Didn't get to go to the. Aaron is the one who made a golden calf and then tried to revise history and said it was the people who you know gave me all this and I threw it in the fire and the calf just jumped out. It was Samuel who, even though he followed a priest who had wicked sons, he didn't keep his sons in check and tried to set them up to uh, succeed him, even though they were wicked. God yet heard these flawed people. And the text says he answered them. Now, think about this. This wholly distinct God finds a way to interact with people like you and I. And not just interact, he'll actually answer. I, I didn't get to say it, in, in this past uh, uh, sermon but have you ever thought about how he even answers us when we have questions do you remember when abraham was just chilling at the house genesis chapter 18 and god just came by and abraham said man you want something to eat and they had some food and whatever and then they just taught, start talking, and God said, Will I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do since he's going to instill his, in his family, read that text, Genesis chapter 18, justice and righteousness because he's following after me. And he, since he worships me, he's going to be like me. And so, God, in his holiness, he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tells Abraham, I'm thinking, go down here, man. Uh, I'm tired of this. And Abraham said, Wait a minute. Won't the king of the earth, won't the righteous judge of all the earth, won't he do right? God, what if you're 550 there? And you remember the story. They started talking. They started having discussions. Here's all I'm trying to say is, if you're honest with God, if you tell him exactly what's on your heart and mind, if you will actually wrestle with God, you might wind up being one of God's friends too. You, you, you might be here and you have questions. I want to challenge you God wants your questions because he wants to give you clarity he wants to give you insight into who he really is not who you've heard him to be he's completely different than what you've been imagining he's holy he loves justice executes equity justice and he establishes equity but he chooses to answer people who call upon him Can I share with you, if you call upon the Lord today, he'll answer you. If you have questions, you came here with questions, you came here with a friend, came here to the conference for whatever reason, whatever your questions are, I promise you, if you'll talk to him, he'll answer you because that's what he does. This holy God, they called upon him, he answered them. Verse 7, in the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them, and they kept his testimonies and statutes that he gave them. Not only did he answer them, but he gave them uh, guidelines. He gave them instructions in terms of how to operate in relationship with him as well as with other people. But verse 8 is where I want to get to, and this is where we'll see if we can't land, and that is this. Verse 8 says, O Lord, our God, you answered them. Great. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Now, let's dig in right quick. You answered them, and this holy God forgave them. Now, since God's holiness is not just, again, a a version of The best thing that we can imagine, but something completely different. It's this distance between us where he's utterly and supremely untainted, pure, incomprehensibly beautiful. His holiness stands apart. And yet he found a way to forgive fallen, broken people like you and I. But at the same time, wait a minute, he didn't just forgive them, but he avenged their wrongdoings. Now, this is something that we have to keep in tension, that we have to be clear in our understanding that yes, forgiveness by, through, for, from this holy God is possible, but wrongdoing has to be paid for. There are consequences. He was an avenger of their wrongdoing is what the text says that somehow or another, because he is holy because he is just because he is fair. His mercy says forgiveness is available, but his justice says, but somebody got to pay. Otherwise he's not holy. Otherwise he's not just. Otherwise, he's not equitable. Otherwise, he's not integral. (laughs) Justice requires payment. Mercy says, but I answer those who call upon me and I forgive those who trust in me. It's learning how to trust a God like this that gives us great hope. But how does this work? How can holiness, uh, think about this, how can holiness, justice, forgiveness, and avenging, how can they coexist? It can only coexist in a true picture, an accurate depiction, a real representation of who God is and not in the figments of imagination that we pick and choose in today's society. Let me say it a little more succinctly. How in the world can holiness, justice, forgiveness, and avenging exist? There's only one way. Since the gap is so big between us and God, because the distance is so great, it can only be breached from his side. We can't do it. We can't... How can we? Because all of us have sinned and we keep coming sh- short of the glory of God. There's none of us righteous. No, not one. And the bad news gets worse. The wages of sin, the end result of Maintaining this distance is that distance will be set in eternity. Eternally separated from God. We have no hope. Unless God decides to bridge the gap. Unless the Holy One who hears sinners' prayers decides, I'm going to find a way to come to them. A grandfather was watching his grandson Baby, just like uh, little baby Eden and the other little child I saw earlier today, and grandfather was playing with the son. The mother was in the kitchen trying to prepare lunch for them, and the grandfather couldn't resist. I understand this. I'm a grandfather. Kept on picking up the baby and playing with the baby. And the mother said, "Dad, I need you to put the baby down. It's supposed to be taking a nap. Stop picking the baby up. Leave." Junior, in the crib, in the playpen that I have set up there. He said, okay. She went back to cooking, and she heard them giggling and snickling again. She went back, and he had taken the baby out the playpen again and just, you know, bouncing. Said, now, Dad, I told you, Junior's supposed to be taking a nap. Y'all stop playing. Put him back in the crib and leave him alone. She went back in the kitchen one more time, heard him laughing and playing again. She said, I know he did. And so she came back in the room, and Grandpa had got in the playpen with Junior. She said, What are you doing? She, he said, You said I couldn't take him out. You didn't say I couldn't get in it with him. I point that out because we need somebody who can get in it with us, somebody who can come to where we are, somebody who thought it not robbery to be equal to God, that's holiness. But took on the form of a servant, became like us. Came obedient, even obedient to the point of death. He related to us. He came and got in the he came and got in it with us. And that's how he can become. Wait a minute. But no, that, that's not enough. It says he was forgiving, he forgave them, but he's also avenger of their wrongdoing. Now, in their case, remember that. There was a prescription as it relates to how sins in the Old Testament were atoned for, were paid for. Remember, they had to go to the mercy seat. You remember back up in the first, verse, first couple of verses, it talks about how God is enthroned above the what? The cherubim? That sort of gives sort of a picture of not only what's in heaven, but how even in the Old Testament, there was a mercy seat where the blood of a blameless lamb, had to be sprinkled, had to be poured out. The the lamb hadn't done anything. The people had, but the lamb had to give its life so that the people could live. And this text is showing us that that's God's pattern. That's his modus operandi. He can forgive and avenge, but it's only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's only at a cross where the Holy Lamb of God became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was only at the cross where the sun refused to shine and the earth quaked in cosmic rebellion as the sun went out because the sun was going down. It was at the cross where justice and mercy met together. It was at the cross where justice was executed And where rightness, rectitude was established is only at the cross. At the cross where the payment of sin was paid in full. So that when Jesus said it is finished, that meant all your sins, all my sins in the past, present and future have already been paid for. Now, if we will put our trust in him and his completed work on Calvary, we too can cry in a different way, holy. Holy is the Lord. Wait a minute, look at the last verse because this text ends having described his transcendence and his history with people who are like you and I and the fact that he has a pattern, he has a habit of forgiving and avenging, of Justice and mercy of compassion and yet integrity to his holiness. How does the text end? Look at verse nine. Here's the appropriate response. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Notice how verse five as well as verse nine end with this idea of Worshipping God at a designated place, but if you pay attention to the sort of nuanced way that the text ends in verse nine, it ends on a note of intimacy. Wait a minute. And not just individual intimacy, but collective intimacy. So let me say this and I'm done. And that is this, that if we can recognize the distance between us and this holy God, his transcendence, but yet the fact that he has a pattern of dealing with flawed humans like us, a pattern that includes forgiving and avenging. If we can grasp hope to and commit ourselves to the person who ultimately, on an ugly hill called Calvary, expressed and showed us finally what God's justice and mercy look like, then we'll learn how to exalt, we'll, we'll have a different type of intimacy. See, this is eternal life, that they may know thee the true God and the, the only God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This idea of intimacy with God, having an intimate relationship with him that does not just include me and him, but us. There's a us-ness to this situation where we learn how to come together and give him all the glory and all the praise because he's not like us. But having said that, if we really worship him, how then ought we to live? What ought our priorities to be? What ought we love? And how ought we deal with those who need forgiveness just like we need it, while at the same time recognizing that God is an avenger of wrongdoing? Holy is He. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Ed. I have a. Couple-